from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Evan Mandry will join us to discuss First Contact. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the possibility of extraterrestrial life continues to thrill and excite the imagination. But what if contact were made with an alien species and the leaders of the world completely messed up the situation? Well, joins today to discuss this possible situation is Professor Evan Mandry. Uh, Professor Mandry is a professor at the City University of New York and author of several previous works, including The Campaign and Dreaming of Gwen Stefani. His latest work, First Contact, or It's Later Than You Think, uh, explores this unique scenario, and he joins us today to talk about his very fascinating uh, novel. Professor Mandry, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. This certainly looks interesting, humorous, fun book, First Contact. I'm wondering, why did you decide to write the book? There were a couple of thoughts in my mind that got me there. One was, you mentioned I wrote a book about politics. I worked in politics for a while. I like politics, and so I was very spiritually immersed in what was going on, and I was like, hmm, what would be the most challenging situation that could confront someone like who was leading our country at the time, and how would he handle it? The book is consciously an homage to Kurt Vonnegut, and he was my favorite writer, and I hope people who liked his books might, to some lesser extent, like mine, and there was some desire on my part to write something in honor of him. A few things I consciously modeled, I actually, I'm a character in the book, and the fact of my being a character in the book is itself a subject of conversation in the book, and, mm. and obviously, you know, if you've read Vonnegut, that's something he does, or in, in, intersperses alter ego, Kilgore Trout. So that was definitely conscious. I don't know that the aliens were specifically modeled on anything from him other than everything I think I treat kind of whimsically and nonsensically, and that certainly is consistent with him and inspired to some extent by him. Hmm. Did you have it in mind to be satirical and farcical in that way then? Yes. <laughs> it's definitely a farce. No question about that. Well, maybe you should set the backdrop first uh, of the story uh, that you've set forth in the book here. Right. Well, I know this will be hard for uh, listeners to imagine, but the President of the United States at the time of first contact is a Republican, God-fearing, science skeptic person, and he ends up ultimately misinterpreting the aliens' intentions. The aliens are, are very sweet and non-judgmental and altruistic, but they like the French and they like Woody Allen movies and they invite him to brunch and he initially concludes that they're Jewish and ultimately concludes that they're friends of the French, and he basically just gets them completely wrong because of all of his particular idiosyncratic tastes. And he ends up sending Earth into a, a feudal war against the aliens, and the aliens reciprocate in, in very precise kind by basically destroying the president and Congress and leaving everything else exactly intact. So that's the backdrop, but I think it's, it's overall, uh, I, I hope at least, a very optimistic book. I read a lot of science fiction, 
it's in the same way that Kurt Vonnegut isn't exactly science fiction, not science fiction. I mean, it's got a scientific premise. It's more whimsy, more satire, commentary, something mm. like that. Mm. Kurt Vonnegut could sort of tackle a lot of political issues, satirical issues in science fiction that perhaps he would not be able to tackle as directly if he just wrote straight fiction or nonfiction work. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I also say, I, I should say that the, the president, the character in my book, I, I'm actually trying to investigate a, a question which I think is relevant to any empiricist, anybody who takes science seriously, and it's how to understand the approach of someone whose thought process for thinking about issues is not the scientific method, but faith. And I think there's a tendency, I'm, I don't mind saying, I freely admit this, I'm a Democrat and I'm a lefty, and there's a tendency to think that someone like the former president who reaches a conclusion to go to war on the basis of preying on something, <laughs> that they're dumb. And, and I don't think that's fair. I think they're possessive of a different framework of, for looking at the world, but I don't think that equates with a lack of intelligence. And in fact, I think the presidential character in my book is actually quite smart. He acts in a way that... <laughs> A scientist would be appalled by, but that's different than saying that he's not intelligent. And that's the issue I was trying to introduce a serious dialogue about. And it's hard, obviously. You know, I live in New York. Everybody, I'm an academic. I'm around liberals and ultra-liberals. That's the extent of the diversity of my political experience. And, and like I said, there's this way of talking about people with whom those folks disagree that I, I think is unproductive. I make this analogy, too. I mean, I, I freely say I'm pro-choice. But I think it's a mistake to dismiss somebody who is on the life side as unintelligent. And I think it's clearer in that instance because the philosophical argument is so much murkier that we're much more inclined to treat the other side with respect than in this situation. So I wanted to see if I could get at in a funny way why that's such a gross division that we can't cross. I mean, it's not as if everything that the religious right asserts is self-interested. I mean, much of it is altruistic. Again, it may, be a, it may lead to a conclusion you, do, you don't like. It may lead to an infringement of privacy rights or another set of privacy, you know, another person's set of rights. But it's a, it's a mistake to equate it with greed or a lack of thoughtfulness, I think. What do you think would happen if aliens uh, came down today? Well, <laughs> I voted for this person. Uh, I voted for this current president twice. I think he's supremely intelligent person, and I think he would handle it rationally rather than spiritually. The president in my book, unfortunately, does prey on the matter and reaches this very bad conclusion. The impetus for aliens arriving in my book, there's this funny, nerdy conversation among people in the White House about why the aliens are coming, and they ask whether it's on the basis of Jodie Foster contact principles, because they've received the first television transmission, or from like the Twilight Zone when they're coming because they have an agenda of eating people. In fact, the aliens in my book are coming because they've made a scientific calculation that Earth has reached a statistical point where it's more likely than not that humanity will kill itself off. And they're trying to steer Earth onto a safer course. And they're kind of sociologists. They tell the president that religion is itself a risk factor, which I, I think you, you can imagine from a sociologist standpoint, because it leads you to dismiss scientific evidence, which those of us who are wed to, uh, <laughs> you know, a data-based way of thinking about the world think is very destructive. I mean, how can a rational person look at the evidence for global warming and dismiss it? I mean, it's, there's an answer. It's because they, they don't rely on the same sorts of facts to make their decisions. Right. There is definitely an audience for the book, and it's, it's self-consciously an angsty, existentially overwrought 
intelligent person. There are a few choices, actually, that I make consciously. There's a second subtitle to the book, which is Parrot Sketch Excluded, and there's a Monty Python reference. And, of course, I'm trying to be funny, but there's a lot of conversation about the possibility of objectivity. And you, I don't know if you remember, in Annie Hall, there's this great scene where somebody's talking about what the critic Marshall McLuhan would say about something, and Woody Allen just steps out of character and says, wouldn't you like to set this person straight? And the text and the subtext in the book, but this, a lot of the subtext in my book is about this possibility of an objective perspective. And of course, that's what scientists would say, that we're objective, and the president, the religious right, would say, no, you're just possessive of a different subjective perspective, right? Mm -hmm. It's your, your belief in the sanctity of the scientific method is a leap of faith, just in the same way that my belief in the ultimate goodness of God and, you know, the rightness of things is also a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. So do you think there can be an objective perspective? I'm skeptical. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if there is, it's, it's not only God would be able to have it. <laughs> Putting yourself in the book, uh, you certainly acknowledge that this is your, your voice, your, your ideas. Do you sort of sense that scientists, in, in the way that they look at it, can they even be divorced of their investigations? Well, this is a great subject of inquiry in every discipline. My wife is a sociologist, and she would happily spend a few hours with you debating whether the researcher can ever remove himself or herself from their project. And she would say, no. You know, I, I think the difference between good science and bad science, and, and I'm going to say this as a timidly, uh, because I'm really a lawyer by training, is that scientists, the good scientist acknowledges his or her own bias. And then the data speaks for itself. So they allow the, the person who's using the data to put it in context, to say this is the person who collected it, this was, these were the biases that they brought, and I can make my decisions, my, my policy decisions or public policy decisions with that information. I don't think ultimately anybody really, I th think the difference would be maybe some scientists, maybe some sociologists would say, if your end is big enough, if you have enough people in your study, well, then it doesn't really matter, right? If you have a million respondents, then whatever my personal bias as the administrator of the study is going to be is just going to get washed out in the sheer numbers of people we have responding. But even still, there's got to be lots of subjective thoughts that end up filtering in. Hmm. This is funny to me because this conversation is very serious, and this is, I love this. And of course, the book is all absurd, it's all nonsense. <laughs> so, this is all this stuff. This is all what's behind the book, and none of it is what actually happens, which is, you know, there's lots of conversation about fruit punch and PTAs and stuff like that. <laughs> which makes for a more entertaining read, I guess, than yeah, this conversation. I, <laughs> that's what I would want to read anyway. <laughs> Do you think science really is sort of playing a role in shaping policy? It hasn't in the past, and I guess it continues to have a tough role in having a say in shaping a public policy. I'll just say one thing before I answer that, which is, you know, mention my background as a lawyer. This, this objectivity, this possibility of objectivity is hugely important to the law, and in fact, a school of thought called legal realism, and, and it was a, a dramatic insight. And what it was was judges, and this is true today, law is so disempowering. People just think, oh, the law is whatever it is. But of course, all the law is, is an interpretation of a statute or a prior case by a socially situated person, right? It's a person who has a gender and has a race and has a class, and they make a decision. And so what the legal realist would say is, this decision isn't the law. This is, I can report the facts of this decision and all of the background biases that this person brought to it, and it has to be understood in that way. And that, I think, is a very empowering message for people of all sorts, that just because Antonin Scalia or Ruth Bader Ginsburg says it, that's just their opinion, and their opinion is shaped by the same, whether they had a bad breakfast that morning, just like anybody mm -hmm. else. Back to science and government, well, I mean, this is just my subjective bias. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, at least we have a, we have a rationally run administration now where uh, I think things actually are to 
you know, to the extent that anybody can make perfect predictions about how things go, I mean, run on the basis of data. I mean, you at least feel like things may not go perfectly politically, which is a whole different thing, but at least you feel that the judgments that the president and his administration are making are informed by real facts, real data. Mm-hmm. So it makes me happy. But again, that's, I don't know that that makes me right. <laughs> it just makes me happy. <laughs> well, I mean, that's more important than being right. <laughs> Great. That's why I write nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> what was one of your favorite uh, Vonnegut books? Well, I read Breakfast of Champions first, Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually have a passage in the book about the experience of reading Breakfast of Champions, and so part of, I think, any serious reader, there's a joy to reading when you're a late teenager that I think, I just think it's independent of the quality of the book itself. So I don't know if I read Breakfast of Champions today, I'm sure I still would have liked it, but I know that I would have had the same emotional reaction to it that I did. Another book like that for me is I read, uh, I read all Ayn Rand when I was 18. Mm. One of my books has a, a little bit of a Randian theme to it, so I went back and reread Atlas Shrugged, and I liked it, but I didn't love it in the way that I did. And in fact, I found myself parsing the philosophy. I love Breakfast of Champions, and what I think is so great about Vonnegut, what makes him a great writer, and you know, I don't know him as a person, but as you said, such a humanistic spirit to it, which is that he's honest in all of these ways, and it's such a powerful idea for him to say to you as the novelist, well, I'm the novelist, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to put out there who I am for you. Mm-hmm. Because 99% of novels that you read, I mean, what is omniscient author? Omniscient mm-hmm. author is this idea that we can buy into for storytelling purposes, the idea of an all-knowing person possessive of an objective perspective. Vonnegut may have had predecessors. I'm not enough well enough immersed in the history of American literature to know, but he's the first I read of, the first I ever encountered like that, and uh, I thought it was incredibly fun, most importantly, and empowering as a reader. And he was always somewhat uh, self-deprecating of himself in his own work, uh, putting his alter ego Kilgore Trout's uh, works being published in uh, rag magazines. Yeah, my author in the book is equally self-deprecatory. He's, uh, he's extremely petty, and there's a, somebody's reading the book in my book and not liking it, and so my character in the book ends up banishing him into a recursion uh, because he doesn't like his reaction. Yeah. So I thought that it's great. It's a great flourish that he's, he diminishes himself in that way. Right. Uh, a little bit of Douglas Adams in your book as well? I love Douglas Adams, and there definitely is. And it's funny because as I'm older and I know a little bit more of like the intellectual history of comedy, and I know that Doug- Douglas Adams had really close connections to Monty Python. And, you know, I know there's not a person Monty Python to the truth. And, you know, it makes sense. There's this sensibility, and it's, it's the same thing. And I think in every, I think scientists think, think this. I think lawyers think this. I mean, it's thinking about extreme cases that really lead people to understand their principles. And so, I mean, I think what Adams does is, is great. And also, I read, relevant to what we said earlier, I read Adams at the right age. I read Adams when I was 17, so I, I always always had a special place in my heart for it. Well, he was also associated with a, a long-running uh, science fiction program called Doctor Who, which I think... Uh, you want to, I, I would be very happy to uh, talk Doctor Who trivia with you. Doctor Who is my favorite TV show of all time. Uh, and I'll tell you this one. This is, this is funny, because I, I, I watched Doctor Who at the right age. I got into it when I was 14. And so I always like, ah, I'm always going to love Tom Baker, Tom Baker, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I was actually so moved by the new Doctor Who, David Tennant, hmm. that in the last episode where he left the show, I actually cried. Hmm. And I, I think he's such a, a brilliant actor, and I actually 
credit Russell Davies, uh, the scriptwriter for the last one, where there's this moment. Uh, I take it you're a Doctor Who fan, yeah? Of course. And I've seen the last episode, you're, you're, so you're, you're not spoiling it for me. You're the biggest geek I've ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this, there's this moment in the last episode where he goes, I don't want to go. Mm. And, you know, he laid this foundation. The regeneration had never... This is really geeky, I'm sorry. <laughs> but regeneration in the old Doctor Who had never been a traumatic event. And he turned it into something because he says it's like death. And it changes the whole perspective on it, and I thought made it much more powerful as a story. I love the, I actually love the new Doctor Who. I think it's great. Sort of brought the Doctor as being more a uh, vulnerable figure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they did. he did a few things which I, you know, as a writer, as someone who's interested in human drama, you know, the old Doctor Who was so asexual <laughs> um, that it made it very difficult to relate to him as a person. And and they've they've off they've they've put in some overtones you know some some hints of that which I know not maybe a tiny bit offensive to tra- Doctor Who traditionalists but I like it and I love there's a flourish when they reintroduced Sarah Jane Smith mm-hmm. and she was so hurt by the way the Doctor had left her mm-hmm. and I was always overwhelmed by that idea because I I guess I I must have started watching him when I'm younger than I'm saying I must have been like twelve or thirteen and I used to fantasize about this idea. But imagine, so on the one hand, imagine leaving your family, which is something they've recurrently dealt with, with Rose and some of the, and Martha and some of the other new sidekicks. But more than that, imagine being left behind and having to go back to working at, you know, the White Hen or something like that <laughs> after, after years of traveling the universe. And that reality, I thought it was brilliant that he hinted at that. And my only wish is that the stories were a little longer so he could really more fully explore those narrative arcs. But I give him heaps and heaps of credit. Looking forward to the new Stephen Moffat series? We only, what, two months to go? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like this has turned into the Doctor Who show now. So. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, this is, when I uh, send this to my friends, uh, when you put it up on the internet, I'm going to bill it as, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to bill it as the geekiest conversation I've ever had in my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we should switch uh, topics back again to to your new book. I, I, it's all right. I'm, doc, if, if you like, if you like Doctor Who, every, everything we've talked about, that's the sensibility of person that I'm <laughs> writing to. So I, I think it's all relevant. All right. Um, so I guess final words that I think people should know about the new book and sort of the uh, the quirkiness, the the fun philosophy behind it. Like, there are no guarantees in life, but if you like some of the people we've talked about, if you like Vonnegut, you like Douglas Adams, and I think you'll you'll have a laugh with my book. And I'll tell you one thing briefly, which is my new one, um, actually, my new one is is done, and it'll be out in like another year and a half or so. It has a time, time travel element to it. So that is actually not just an element, that's the center of the story, is that there's a me visited by a series of future me's, each dissatisfied with the course of my life, and each increasingly dissatisfied with the new <laughs> courses of my life. <laughs> And does it does it change the course of the future you's life? Yeah, I, I try to I try to avoid I try to avoid. I definitely don't write hard science fiction. I like reading hard science fiction. Uh, I don't feel qualified to write it, and I've very much tried to steer clear of butterfly effect. Uh, in fact, I I set up an absurd premise for avoiding it, so that I don't won't have people saying, "Oh, wouldn't this have changed the course of history?" or something like that. So. <laughs> the new book is called First Contact, or it's later than you think. Professor Mandry, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much for having me. And you were just listening to Professor Evan Mandry discussing First Contact. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, alien or human? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are in fact human or in fact aliens in human disguise, and a little reason why. Professor Mandry, you're to play the game. I'm ready to play. Uh, here we go. Person number one, alien or human, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani is an alien. And I'll tell you how I know. You mentioned during our interview, my first book, I worked for the woman who ran for mayor against Rudy Giuliani in 1997 in New York City. And so I observed Rudy Giuliani for a year, and there is no human being who is capable of bugging their eyes out to the same extent as he is. So I'm conclusively sure that he is an alien. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Number two, though, is the golfer Tiger Woods. (sighs) Tiger Woods is a human. (laughs) You're hitting my uh, sweet spot. I'm a huge golf fan, and <laughs> I've been following Tiger Woods' story since he was a kid. And Tiger Woods, I think, is the almost predictable result of a childhood where accomplishment was the only thing that mattered, the only thing where he got feedback, and also uh, an actual life where he was massively indulged by people around him. And I think it's very hard for him to find satisfaction from things, and I think it's, uh, in some ways, I feel, I feel very, very sad for him. A lot of human failings, I guess. I think so. Uh, but number three is the pop star, Lady Gaga. Uh, Lady Gaga is a human, and Lady Gaga is a great human, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Lady Gaga, both in her music and in her political advocacy, is a great humanist. She treats Um, I mean, Lady Gaga is actually revered by the gay community, but but correctly so, because she preaches a message of tolerance and equality, and I actually think she's a brilliant musician, and I'm a fan, and I wish her well. Uh, Number four, this is a last-minute switch here, uh, David Tennant. (laughs) David Tennant is the best human being. (laughs) David Tennant is a brilliant actor. David, and here's why I love David Tennant, okay? Do you watch, by any chance, the Graham Norton show? I haven't seen the Graham Norton show, no. All right, I I understand it's not science fiction, but it's on BBC America. Mm -hmm. Graham Norton is a brilliant comedian slash talk show host. Funnier than, (laughs) I was really hoping you'd ask me about Jay Leno, by the way, because Jay Leno (laughs) is an alien, but uh, (laughs) who was sent to Earth to ruin Conan O'Brien's life. Um, David Tennant was on, Graham Norton is also a, a Whovian, and he had David Tennant on, and David Tennant said something that just struck such a chord with my heart, which is how much he loved Doctor Who and how much he loved doing it. And since I'm an incredible geek, also a big Star Trek fan, and Patrick Stewart never said the same thing. And Patrick Stewart is a brilliant actor and a great, I actually met him briefly. He's a great, warm person. But Star Trek was a means to an end for him. I mean, it it was clearly not his passion. And David Tennant so thoroughly bought into it. And he's firmly immersed in Doctor Who trivia. They went through the audience and asked him questions, and he knew everyone. He was a total geek. <laughs> and to me, a guy who can be Doctor Who, love Doctor Who, and also be Hamlet, um, that's kind of like the pinnacle of human achievement. So a human. Not a Time Lord in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, number five, it's the uh, former president of the United States, George Bush. <sighs> Consistent with what I wrote in my book, I think he's a human being. I I, I think it's, after everything I said, I think it's important that we recognize his humanity and that he's possessive of a different viewpoint that many of us vehemently disagree with. But if we write him off as not human for his spirituality, 
and we dismiss many of our brothers and sisters, and I'm reluctant to do that, though I would never vote for him for anything. (laughs) Disagree with almost every policy decision he ever made. Even though I disagree, I will still affirm his connection to my species. All right. Well, race us all. Except Giuliani. No, Giuliani, I I made (laughs) made a reservation about exploding Rudy. Oh, man, I've got a lot of evidence on this guy. I could give you an hour on on, on him if, if that were relevant. Well, well, we'll we'll have you back for the hour on Giuliani. Next. Gosh, yeah, I'm sure your audience will love that. <laughs> All right, well, well, the the new book is called First Contact, or It's Later Than You Think. And Professor Madry, I want to thank you for sticking around, talking about the book, and, of course, playing our game, The Grokotron 5000. Really my pleasure being here, and not even my students call me Professor Mandry, so <laughs> Evan is great, and thank you very much. All right, well, thank you for your time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.